This will be more like a Bible study where we think about a topic and we show different verses that relate to that topic. And so this is not exposition um, in the sense that we're just going through, but it is exposition in the sense we're seeing what the Scriptures say about a particular topic. Now, if you haven't seen someone in a long time, and let's say you have a, a friend that's a good friend uh, that you just haven't been able to talk to, you haven't been able to catch up in shoot the breeze with and you begin to talk with them and you say hey haven't seen you in a long time how are you doing what is the typical response that we have to that question how are you doing we probably say good or fine and then usually there's a little thing that we we tag on to the end of that little fine I'm doing all right we usually say something along these lines right we say I've been pretty busy Right? Been pretty busy. I think all of us uh, feel that life's demands make us busy at times, and we go, man, yeah, I got a lot going on, and we could cite all the different ways we're busy. Uh, we tend to be busy. Uh, I think our nation tends to um, make us feel like we can do just about anything, and we usually have the means to go about and try anything, and so we sometimes think we should do anything. It comes our way, and every opportunity that knocks is something we should open and try. And so we're always investing our time into various things and places, and we can get pretty busy. So in all the busyness of life, it's hard to think through all the time, well, what do we prioritize? Uh, because there's always demands. You have demands from family. You have demands from friends. You have demands at work. You have demands on your time. You have commitments you've made. You have relationships that require your investment. All the time in your life at every angle, you have things that call you and wisdom, right? Wisdom is required to really think through, well, how do I prioritize all the different things that I need to do? And a lot of times these things aren't good versus bad you know, righteous versus wicked. It's a lot of good things that we could give our time to. And so we often think, well, what is the best priority? And now as we think through that question, what do I prioritize in life? What matters most in life? As Christians, one of the questions that follow that is, well, where does the church fall? In all the things that I'm called to do, where does the church, and I don't mean the building, I don't mean the service, I mean the people, the, the people that we have committed ourselves to, where is our commitment to these people and this relationship that we have and even the things we have planned to do together, you know, where does this fall on the list of priorities? Uh, where does this land? Now, on this morning, as we think about the priority of the local church, I want to give uh, some fuel to think about why the church is so important to the Christian life. And I want us to think through this as we look through different portions of Scripture, why I think Christians ought to have their lives prioritizing their church and their church family. And I want to do this because... First of all, I think it's thrilling to see how God has organized the church and it ought to excite us to think about what we've been called to be a part of. And I want to remind us and even urge us forward to work together for the, the, the church 
as we think about how God has planned to use the church, it is His plan A in the world, and if He is committed to the church, then how also we should be committed to the church. So we're thinking through church priorities. You know, where does the church fall on our list of priorities? And I want to say, I think we ought to be thinking about how we should prioritize our local church. And I'm going to give us some reasons, five biblical reasons, why we ought to prioritize the local church. And here's reason number one. If you're a note taker, as we look through Scripture, I think the number one reason we prioritize the local church in our lives as believers is this. We prioritize the local church because Jesus does. In Acts chapter 20, if you want to turn there, uh, Paul is speaking to some elders in the Ephesian church. He's labored in Ephesus and he's seen the Lord do some amazing things and people have come to salvation. And Paul is leaving now. And as he's leaving, he gets these elders together and he's got some kind of last parting words. And whenever there's parting words, it's time for us to perk up and listen well because parting words are important words. And here, he's speaking to the elders. And if we start in verse 26, he's giving them some warnings. He's about to talk about wolves that will come into the flock and they won't spare the flock because they don't have God's truth on their mind. They have their own agenda. So he's got a little bit of a warning, but he says this in verse 26. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then listen to this. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The reason why the elders ought to care for the church, at least in Paul's evaluation in this particular text, is because this church, the church of God, the church of Christ, was obtained or it was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's precious to him. What you're willing to pay for reveals how much you value it, right? If you look at an object in the store and you got a dollar in your pocket and that thing you're looking at and you're thinking about whether you could buy it and you say, well, I got a dollar, but I'm not even going to spend my dollar on that thing, you would then, it'd be true that you don't really evaluate that thing very highly. You don't consider it very worthy of you even investing a single dollar. But if there's something you would see that would say, oh, I'm willing to give one dollar, I'm willing to give a thousand dollars to buy that, that means you're valuing it more. And so the more you're willing to pay to get something shows how much you value it. Well, the Bible is clear that the church wasn't purchased by Christ's money. It's not that he put down a down payment to get the church. He was willing to pay not with silver or with gold or with dollar bills, but he was willing to purchase the church of God with his very own blood. I mean, how many things in life are we willing to purchase with blood? I mean, you might think of a close relationship with a spouse or with a child that you would be willing to jump in front of a bullet or hurt, even get into harm's way in order to preserve the life. I mean, that's, you're willing to spend even your own health to help someone. There's ties of relationships so strong and so deep in those relationships. Well, Jesus, out of the immensity of His love for the church, was willing to pay not with money, not with silver, not with gold, but with his own shed blood. So the 
the, the point here is how much does Jesus love the church? How much is he devoted to the church? I mean, think of the metaphors even that the New Testament uses to describe the church. Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ loves the church like it's his bride. Remember the wedding day when we were in a little church, actually not very far from here, and I stood up here and I remember Ashley coming in through these uh, two doors at the very back and seeing her dressed up in the, the beauty of a wedding gown and watching in the, my own heart starts beating fast. That was my bride and I was going to commit myself to love her for the rest of my life. And that image there is the image that Christ is using for His bride, which is us, that He is committed to us, that He loves us, that if you ever doubt that He loves you, that you can look back to the vow He made at the cross where He paid for you with His own blood. And then He rose from the dead to prove that the promises He made are true and will come true. That He is so committed to us. And then we, being His followers, love the same things He loves, right? And if we're disciples, we we cherish the same things He cherishes. And so what does that mean for us? That we too ought to love the church. Because Jesus, our Master, our Lord, our Mentor, loves the church. I mean, this is at the heart of the Gospel. Right? The love of God shed on the people of God through the Son of God on the cross and in the resurrection, offering free salvation to everyone who comes and believes. I mean, this is beautiful, the love of God. And the church is what God loves so much that He sent Jesus Christ. You're in Acts, you can turn over a few verses into Acts chapter 9. And you might think, well, what does this have to do with the church? Because it's about Saul and his conversion. If you remember uh, Saul, he was someone who hated the church. He was someone who went from church to church trying to drag Christians out and to put them on the streets or to put them in the prison. He was trying to stamp out the church. That's what Saul wanted to do. If you remember the story that this man who was so antagonistic toward the church, who would have been described as a terrorist of the New Testament, was confronted by the risen Christ. And remember what Jesus said to Saul. Listen to this. He says, he said in verse 4 of chapter 9, he says, falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You hear that? Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He could have said those things, and those things would have been right, because that's what Saul was doing. But what did Jesus say? He says, if you're attacking the church, it's as if you're attacking me. Why are you persecuting me? Because when you go against the church, you're going against me. And we could just flip that around and understand the same truth that if you want to serve Jesus, I trust you're here because you want to serve Jesus. You're thrilled that He redeemed you. You remember who you were before He came into your life. You remember the Gospel transforming you. You want to give your life now to serving your Lord and your Savior. And that's why you come to church on a Sunday morning. And if you've ever asked that question, well, Jesus is in heaven and I'm here on earth, so how do I serve Him? He's not around. I can't follow Him around the same way the first century disciples did. And the answer to that question would be, you want to serve the church? Or sorry, you want to serve Jesus? I just gave it away. You want to serve Jesus? Serve the church. 
Just like Saul, if he persecuted the church, it was persecuting Jesus. You want to give your life to Jesus, we'll start investing in the lives of the people that are your church. And so Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He purchased the church. He says he's going to be building his church. He says it's a spiritual building in 1 Peter 2, that each one of us are like bricks that he's molding together. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, he's the head of the church. He loves the church. He's invested in the church. And if we are followers of Jesus, we say, Jesus, I'm with you for the church. I'm following you to serve the church. Because if I want to serve you, the tangible expression of my service to Christ is to serve the church. So number one reason, first out of the gate, is that if we want to follow Jesus, then we got to love his church. Prioritize the church because Jesus did. And so number two, the second reason why we should prioritize the local church, and we're going to race through here. Yeah, we're definitely going to race through here after I just check the clock, racing through here. Number two, the reason we should prioritize the church is this, because you love Christians. You love Christians. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes this, this very profound statement in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. And then he says, For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so what he's saying is this, that if you love, it's because God has done a work in you He's implanted His love in you, and you're able to now love other people because God's supernatural work of love. And the evidence that you've been born again is that you love people. Verse 1 of chapter 5, if you're in 1 John, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. That's a profound statement as well. If you love the Father, how do you know that someone loves the Father. How do you know that you love the Father? Well, the tangible expression of your love for the Father is you love those who have been born of God, which is to say you love Christians. And so if you're gathering this morning, another reason you gather and another reason you're committed to this church is because you look around at the room and you say, I'm love, I love you. I'm here because I love you and I'm committed to you. 1 John chapter 2 will go on to even make a, a more stunning statement that, that if you don't love your brother, you're still in darkness. Which is to say that the mark of true Christian love that the Father gives us and puts in our hearts is love for His people. You love other Christians. You're called to love other Christians. 1 Peter 1, Love one another earnestly. Is your love for the other people in your church, the other believers that God has bound you together with? Is your love for them earnest? It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. You've been called to love. And so the reason we prioritize this is because we're not just called to love in the sense that we have warm, fuzzy feelings whenever we think of our church family, but because we need to express these, this love in real, sacrificial, genuine, tangible ways. And so one of the reasons we gather on a regular basis and one of the reasons we'll, Lord willing, gather throughout the week uh, and families will get together and share meals and, and share coffee and, and talk life and, and just share uh, our burdens and our sorrows and our joys. One of the reasons is because we think that we've been called to love each other. We actually do love each other and want to express that in each other's lives. 
In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, Paul writes, we're all members of one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, he, he writes, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this is a symptom of a, of a loving church. It's a good diagnostic question for us to ask, uh, maybe to talk about over lunch or something. Ask this question, do you know the joys that your church family is going through so you can rejoice with them? Do you know the spiritual aches and pains of your church family so that you can weep with them? That you can bear those burdens? A symptom of a loving church is that when you're hurting, I hurt. And when you're rejoicing, I rejoice. And that we know each other well enough to express that together in tangible ways. I remember hearing a story recently, and actually it was posted online, and I was able to actually watch it happen. Um, there was an older lady in a church who was on her last leg. She had been serving in the church for many years, and she was a faithful woman of God, a, a saint who had committed her life long, committed to serve the local church, and had done so for decades. And, and at this point in her life, she was unable to get out of bed. And she sat there, and she's barely able to move. She could hear. She could speak a little bit, but couldn't hear or speak very loudly. But without any prompting, without any program, several of her church members showed up at her bedside with hymnals in their hands. And they gathered around. This wasn't something programmed out. It wasn't something that the pastor said, all you go need to go do this right now. It was something they did because they loved this old lady and they wanted to be there for her on her hardest times. And they gathered around her bed and they opened up their hymnals and they sang her favorite hymns to her. And a couple days later, she passed and went into glory. What a precious picture of the love that the church is showing each other. And I hope that will be exactly the kind of things we do together. That if I go down, or if you go down, or if any one of us goes down, that there's people there ready to sit at your bedside and talk to you, or read to you, or sing to you, just to help your spirits in the time of your greatest need. Why? Because we love each other. It's not something we program, and it's not something that happens on a Sunday morning. It's something that is bound us together in the Spirit that we want to be there when you're hurting. You want to be there. If you love the church, you look around and say, these are my people. This is my family. These are the people I'm committing to. I'm going to open my life to them and I'm going to go into their lives. This is how God intends His church to function. I hope many of you will see yourselves like a, the character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I read this book to my children last year, and there's this one character who became my favorite character. His name was Greatheart. And this man was sent by the king to come to little pilgrims on their way to the celestial city. And Greatheart was a great man of great faith. And he came along the, the weak ones and he'd carry them as much as he could to take them home to the celestial city. And he would do whatever he could. He'd fight the bad guys. He'd help them along. He'd, 
He'd bind their wounds. He was there to help people get home to heaven. And the king had commissioned him. And he said, it is my duty to love these people. And when the king calls me home, I'll go home. But until he calls me, I'm here to help people get home. What an what a image for me is, I would love to be a great heart. And I hope many of us say, we look at each other as, I'm here to help people get home to heaven. I'm here to give my life to serving the weak and the needy the hurting, those who are in pain, I'm committed like Greatheart was. The old Charles Spurgeon compared himself to a Greatheart as well. He said, in his much more eloquent way, he said it like this. He said, I am committed and occupied in my small way like Mr. Greatheart was employed in John Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that great champion, but I'm in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. It is my business as best as I can to kill dragons, to cut off giants' heads, to lead on the timid and the trembling. I'm often afraid that I'll lose some of the weaklings. I have a heartache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help and looking after one another, I hope we shall travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many have I had to part with there and I've stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream, and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. He's speaking, of course, metaphorically, leading people not only to Christ, but then walking with them to their dying day until the Lord took them home, and He was at their bedside saying, Oh, Lord, You're receiving these people. It's almost as if I could see the angels taking them home to be with the Lord in glory. Don't you want to be that person? Don't we want to be there for each other? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? So let's prioritize it because we love one another. It's simple. We just love one another like a family does. We want to be here for each other. Like great heart, commit to one another to help each other get home to heaven. That's what it's about. A third reason we should prioritize the church is because we've made commitments. We've made commitments. Maybe we live in a society that doesn't value commitment. You have to put your signature on anything in order for it to be valid. Nobody's word really means much these days anymore. But we've all made commitments. We already have commitments. The moment you were born into a family, you had commitments that God intended you to live out with your family. If you have kids, your commitments to them. But the moment we began to follow Jesus... In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, If anyone would be my disciple, let him renounce all he has. And so the first commitment we made, as we said, Jesus, you're my Lord. I'm following you and I'm trusting you to pay for all my sins and to forgive me and adopt me into your family. The moment we called him Lord and trusted in him to forgive us, we also said, Lord, I renounce everything I have. I renounce my selfish ambition. And I'm entrusting everything to you. Our first commitment was to say, Lord, you're my everything. You are my priority, Jesus. That was our first commitment that we made. And then, as we began to follow Jesus, many of us got baptized. And this was the normal New Testament routine. That in obedience to Jesus, as you profess your faith, you got baptized. And baptism is a public profession of what you believe. And in baptism, there are commitments. You're saying, I'm with you, Jesus. You're saying it publicly. You're saying, I'm not with the world anymore. I'm with Christ. 
And I'm with the body of Christ, in the fellowship of Christ, in the body of believers called the church. And then if we take communion together, whenever we go to the table, we, we hopefully are not just looking down at our bread and our cup, but we're looking around and we're saying, I'm committed to these brothers and sisters. That the people I share at the table with, these are the people I am committed to and committing to on a regular basis as we renew our commitments to Christ and remember what He has done for us. It's a beautiful thing that God intends for us to make commitments to each other, and this is one of the reasons we prioritize the churches. We are going to make good on the commitments we've made and the promises we've made first to God and then to each other. So we say, I'm here. I've made commitments. I'm ready, and I've seen this playing out in, in many people in my life as they have committed themselves to the church. They're willing to get up at 3.30 a.m. to prepare for whatever events come in the next day. They're willing to work hard. They're willing to be at people's houses. They're willing to show up when needed. Why? Because of love, but also because they know that before the Lord, I've made commitments to these people. I've made promises to these specific people. And I'm committed to them. I'm uniting with them. Really, as we think about what we're doing on the second portion of Sunday mornings, is we're really thinking about what this means, these commitments that God intends for us to make to one another. And we're thinking about them and saying, okay, let's get these out there and let's say, let's do this together. And so we've made commitments. Now here's a fourth reason we ought to prioritize the church. As we look at all the reasons, and you could probably find many, many more reasons that we ought to prioritize the church. But here's, here's reason number four. In Job chapter 5, verse 7, Job said, Man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Which is to say, in the modern vernacular, life is hard. You've lived long enough, you know that. Life is hard. You know enough people, you care enough about them, you're going to feel ache throughout your life. Because tragedies in this fallen world are a regular thing. You will feel them in your own life, maybe in an even very personal and private way, the turmoil in your own heart. You will experience pain and difficulty in relationships of people close to you. You will experience it as a church family as we unite together and we hear what's going on in each other's lives. We will ache for one another. And then, not to mention all the things that really aren't very close to us geographically, but the things we see through the internet or through TV, the tragedies that are happening all around the world all the time. We live in a really hard world to live in. And since Genesis 3, since the fall of man and sin entered the world and the curse fell, this world is broken. Can't you feel it? Isn't that why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. It's fixed this broken world. So you live in relationship with people long enough. We're going to be needy. Our fourth point is, Prioritize the local church because you are needy. Every single one of us has difficulties in life. Every single one of us has needs. No man or woman is an island. No one has been so developed by God that they don't need any help from anyone else. 
Not even Christians filled with the Spirit were ever intended or designed to live the Christian life in isolation from a church. And yet sometimes for many of us, let's be honest, isn't it easier to help people in need than to ask for help? Don't you find that to be true, that we'd much rather be the one who is strong and go in to help the one who is weak than in humility admit that we're weak and that we need help and that we need prayer and that we need, we have needs. It's much harder to admit that, isn't it? And yet, isn't that the reality? And so one of the reasons we prioritize the local church is because in humility, we all say we are needy. We need each other. We weren't designed to do this alone. We need people who know us. And we need to know people. We need people to really know us. We need to open our lives to people. We need to approach people in love. Listen to this in, in 1 Corinthians 12, maybe the most famous passage related to the, the life of the body. And in, in verse 14, he starts describing the body being made up of many members, hands, eyes, mouth, and they're all needed. And then in verse 21, you might want to underline this if you haven't already or, or highlight this. He, he makes this statement. He says this. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The eye can't say to the hand, the foot, or the mouth, or any other member, I don't need you. So church, as we look around in this room and we see there are hands and there are eyes and there are mouths and there are different people that God has designed to be different and have different gifts and different abilities and different backgrounds, you know what we're not allowed to say? This is what he says here in, in verse 21. Here's what we're not allowed to say, is I don't need you. I don't need them. We're not allowed to say that. In fact, I think Paul is driving at the opposite. He would have us say, I have great need of you. And that takes humility to say, but this is what we all need to get to the point where we're willing to look at each other and say, I need you in my life. I need you in the way God has crafted you in the way God has given you experience. I need you to speak into my life. I need you there for me. In verse 22, he uses a word, and this is one of my favorite words in this particular section, to describe people who might th you might think are worthless or useless. If you've ever thought anyone, oh, they're not going to contribute anything. Well, Paul has a word for that person. You see it in verse 22. Indispensable. That's the word he uses indispensable. No one can look at any person, the person at the top or the most visible or the person at the bottom that no one even knows. No one can look at them and say, nope, don't need you. We need each other. All of us. Every one of us needs every one of us here. And this is what the body is. When the body isn't functioning well, it's because the members of the body are, it's like the eye is saying to the hand, ah, i got, got enough sight on my own. I don't need a hand. Or the hand is saying to the eye, oh, I can do it all on my own. I don't need anyone to see for me. So we need each other. Now, if you've ever been in a position where you go, oh, I don't really have much to offer. You know, why, why, would, why would I be needed? I don't have much to offer. My life is hard. You know what? 
You know who's the most effective at ministering to others who are in need? It's the people who have a deep sense of their own neediness because they have gone through something really hard in the past and they have cried out to the Lord and experienced His comfort and now they experiencing His comfort want to give it to those who are in need. I, I tell you, if you're, you're suffering and you're hurting, you don't want to go to a slick consultant who just spouts off facts. You don't want to be like Job's friends who all sit around and they all have great reasons for why his life was so hard. You know, when Job's friends were the most effective when they sat around by his side and didn't say a word. And they became way less effective once they started spouting off all the reasons why they thought Job was suffering. We need each other, and sometimes what we need is just the presence of a caring believer who will put their arm around you, sit by you, and weep with you. Sometimes we need someone to just say they're praying for us. But what we do all know and what we can all agree on is that we need each other. I need you. We need each other for this. The last reason we're going to draw out for prioritizing the church, you can find it in Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to turn there. This is my favorite passage on the church. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's inspiring. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul's speaking about his call to be a minister of the gospel and the power that was given to him to preach the Word of God, the grace that was given to him to preach. And in verse 9, he's continuing this thought, and he says, and to bring to light, so this is part of what he sees his role as being, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of, of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Pause right there. Think about that last verse, verse 10. What is God doing in the church? Here's why God is doing what He's doing in the church. Here's His plan. And it is much bigger than what we normally think about. And often our eyes are blinded to these great realities and sometimes we don't think about them as we gather in a routine kind of way on a Sunday morning. We forget this. But look at what He says is happening. Through the church... That is the gathered people of God, the manifold, many-faceted, multicolored wisdom of God is now being made known to whom? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That means angelic hosts watch the church. They peek in into our reality to see what God is doing in the church. And in the church, they encounter the many-colored, manifold wisdom of God. Now, this is something with cosmic implications. That God is doing something greater than what we've normally talked about in the church. He's showing off His grace to the universe. And in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul clearly means that rulers and authorities is also referring to the demonic hosts. He's referring to angels and demons. He's referring to the, the unseen realm, the spiritual forces of this present darkness. And later Ephesians, he speaks of 
Paul is saying, do you understand that as we gather under the preached Word, as the Gospel's made clear, and the light of His redemptive plan is being exposed, God is doing this so that His glory and His wisdom would be seen not only by the people sitting in the pews, but by all creation, all angelic hosts, the multitudes and the myriads of the unseen realm would look in at these little churches preaching the Word and they go, wow, the wisdom of God. That's what is happening even this morning. And the thrill that we would be called, swept in to this amazing plan. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of those people who live out the Beatitudes, He said, you're the light of the world. And it's almost as if Paul says here that the church is the light of the universe. That all creation sees the great plan of redemption. Lost people being saved and brought into the family of God. Being gathered by the Spirit as the church. Being then commissioned to live for His glory in the world as sojourners and exiles in this place. Awaiting a kingdom that will come. And in the meantime, on a mission to make disciples of every nation. And the world sees that and they don't get it, but the unseen realm sees the cosmic wisdom of God on display. You're part of that. I mean, if that's not a reason to wake up in the morning and show up to church and be a part of what we're doing here and commit your lives to one another and say, here we are, we're doing this together, I don't know what is. This is a thrill. This is an absolute thrill. It's God's plan. The church is at the center of the heart of Jesus Christ, at the center of His redemptive plan. It's at the center of what He's doing in the world. Church, listen, you are a trophy of God's grace that He holds up to the watching universe to prove His majesty and glory and wisdom. You are. We are. As we live this out together. If we ever thought that the corporate gathering of the saints of God on a Sunday morning was a small, trivial thing to trifle with, to toss aside. Don't be deceived. We've got to see this for what it is. And that we here now being a part of this is an opportunity that we can't fathom the depths of. I'll finish with a quote of John Piper who says this better than I can. He, he, he says it like this, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, any other organization or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. All the pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena formed into a fades into a formless gray against the splendor of the bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. 
All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord and his family abide forever. Luke 16, 15 says, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will all prevail against every institution except one, the church. Friends, you're part of the church this morning. And let's make this a priority in our lives as we commit together to serve Jesus and walk through this life together. We'll close in prayer. We'll have a quick song and then a quick break and then we'll gather again. Let's pray. So Lord, this reality of your love for the church, your commitment to the church, your purchasing of the church with your own blood, your promises to the church, Lord, they thrill us. And they remind us that our lives ought to orient themselves around the church as we give ourselves to following you. And Lord, I pray that as we move forward together as a church, that we would experience the binding unity of the Spirit. The love that's produced by the Spirit would be experienced and expressed among us in tangible ways. And that we'd be a gathering filled with hope that this is the church that Christ builds, that this is the church that is put on display for all the universe to see, and that the promises you made will come to pass. You will build your church, and you will get your glory, and you will take your bride home one day to be with you forever. We love you. We thank you for this church and what you're doing here. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.